Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for standing by, and welcome to the NXP Second Quarter 2022 Earnings Conference Call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. After the speaker's presentation, there will be a question and answer session. To ask a question during the session, you will need to press star 1-1 on your telephone. Please be advised that today's conference may be recorded. I would now like to hand the conference over to your speaker host today, Jeff Palmer. Please go ahead, sir. Thank you, Livia. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to NXP Semiconductor's second quarter 2002 earnings call. With me on the call today is Kurt Sievers, NXP's president and CEO, and Bill Betts, our CFO. The call today is being recorded and will be available for replay from our corporate website. Today's call will include forward-looking statements that involve risks and uncertainties that could cause NXP's results to differ materially from management's current expectations. These risks and uncertainties include, but are not limited to, statements regarding the continued impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on our business, the macroeconomic impact on the specific end markets in which we operate, the sale of new and existing products, and our expectations for the financial results for the third quarter of 2022. Please be reminded that NSP undertakes no obligation to revise or update publicly any forward-looking statements. For a full, disclo full disclosure on forward-looking statements, please refer to our press release. Additionally, we will refer to certain non-GAAP financial measures, which are driven by, primarily by discrete events that management does not consider to be directly related to NXP's underlying core operating performance. Pursuant to Regulation G, NXP has provided reconciliations of the non-GAAP financial measures to the most directly comparable GAAP measures in our second quarter 2002 earnings press release, which will be furnished to the SEC on Form K and is available on NXP's website in the Investor Relations section at nxp.com. Now I'd like to turn the call over to Kurt. Thank you very much, Jeff, and, and good morning, everyone. We, we appreciate you all joining our call today. Let me begin with a review of our quarter two performance. Our revenue was 37 million better than the midpoint of our guidance, with automotive and industrial and IoT above our guidance, while trends in the mobile and communication infrastructure markets were in line with our expectations. Taken together, NXP delivered quarter two revenue of 3.31 billion, an increase of 28% year over year. Our non-GAAP operating margin in quarter two was a record 36%, 400 basis points better than the year ago period and about 30 basis points above the midpoint of our guidance. Our results reflect strong execution with better than guided operating leverage and profit fall through on the incrementally higher revenue on top of improved gross profit. Now let me turn to the specific trends in our focus and markets. In automotive, revenue was 1.71 billion, up 36% year over year, near the high end of guidance. In industrial and IoT, revenue was 713 million, up 25% year on year, better than our guidance. In mobile, revenue was 388 million, up 12% year-on-year, in line with our guidance. And lastly, communication infrastructure and other revenue was 498 million, up 20% year-on-year, in line with our guidance. Looking at the trends across our end markets, 
we are not naive to believe NXP is immune from the clearly weakening macro environment. We are highly alert and we review frequently and very closely several key indicators relative to the dynamics of customer demand versus supply, inventory per channel, per end market, and per geography. When we look at demand signals, we have a high level of confidence in the intermediate term outlook. This is especially true in terms of demand trends in the automotive and industrial markets, which account for the majority of our total revenue. While there is a well-documented weakness in the low-end Android handset market, it is important to note that our mobile business is more biased towards the premium tier vendors. And in aggregate, our mobile business accounts for only about 12% of our total revenue. In terms of the PC and broad consumer electronics markets, there are much smaller contributors in the IoT portion of our industrial and IoT segment. In terms of customer behaviors, we do not see any substantial weakening within the auto and industrial customer base. Relative to long-term committed customer demand, a large percentage of our major customers continue to firmly desire supply assurance commitments which are facilitated by placing non-cancellable, non-returnable orders with us throughout 2023. And currently, the level of NCNR orders into 2023 is greater than our ability to service. In terms of key operating metrics, which inform our short-term decisions, demand continues to outpace our gradually and incrementally improving supply capability. Furthermore, even as we actively de-risk our existing backlog for potential double or any stale orders, we judge supply to only address approximately 80% of the underlying demand. Additionally, we continue to redirect shipments to those customers which are at risk of going lines down, thus avoiding excess or stagnant inventory buildup. When looking at customer inventory, we continue to see a dysfunctional supply chain which struggles to get the right product mix and complete kits to the correct location in the extended automotive and industrial markets. Now, in terms of our own on-hand inventory, it has increased through quarter two on a dollar basis consistent with orders placed with suppliers and internal build plans. The primary area of increase is in raw material and work in progress in order to fulfill firm customer commitments in future, and especially in quarter three. On a day's basis, DIO was 94, an increase of five days sequentially, and closer to our long-term target of 95 days. Now moving to the distribution channel, which services about half of our total revenue, inventory continues to remain stubbornly below our long-term targets. During quarter two, the month of supply in the channel was barely 1.6, which is about a month below our long-term target, and it is now the seventh consecutive quarter of an exceedingly tight supply situation in the channel. Finally, let me speak to our ability to service customer requirements. Lead times continue to be extended, 
with more than 80% of all products being quoted at 52 weeks or greater, which is actually on a similar level to last quarter. So in summary, against this dynamic backdrop, our second quarter and the first half of the year was a good beginning to what we view will be a positive year for NXP. We do continue to see the second half of the year greater than the first on an absolute dollar basis. Now let me turn to our expectations for quarter three. We are guiding revenue at 3425 million, up about 20% versus the third quarter of 2021, within a range of up 17 to up 22% year on year. From a sequential perspective, this represents growth of about 3% at the midpoint versus the prior quarter. At the midpoint, we anticipate the following trends in our business. Automotive is expected to be up in the low 20% range versus quarter 321, and up in the mid-single digit range versus quarter 222. Industrial and IoT is expected to be up in the low 20% range year on year, and up in the mid-single digit range versus quarter 222. Mobile is expected to be up about 10% year on year, and down in the low single digit range versus quarter 222. And finally, communication infrastructure and other is expected to be up in the low double digit range versus the same period a year ago, and up in the low single digit range on a sequential basis. Let me summarize. The growth we have anticipated for 2022 is materializing. Notwithstanding the clear macro cross currents and the continued supply challenges, we do continue to see strong customer demand in the automotive and industrial segments, as well as within our company-specific accelerated growth drivers. Overall, demand continues to outpace increasing supply. However, we are staying paranoid about the macro environment. And hence, we will continue to work very diligently and in a very disciplined manner to assure inventory across all end markets remains lean. And with that, I would like to pass the, bill over to you, uh, the call over to you, Bill, for a review of our financial performance. Bill. Thank you, Kurt, and good morning to everyone on today's call. As Kurt has already covered the drivers of the revenue during Q2, and provided our revenue outlook for Q3, I will move to the financial highlights. Overall, our Q2 financial performance was very good. Revenue was $37 million above the midpoint of our guidance range, and both non-GAAP gross profit and non-GAAP operating profit were above the midpoint of our guidance. Now moving to the details of Q2, Total revenue was $3.31 billion, up 28% year-on-year, and above the midpoint of our guidance range. We generated $1.92 billion in non-GAAP gross profit and reported a non-GAAP gross margin of 57.8%, which is up 170 basis points year-on-year, 
and both above the midpoint of the guidance range as a result of higher revenue and positive product mix. Total non-GAAP operating expenses were $724 million, or 21.9%, up $98 million year-on-year, and up $36 million from Q1, in line with our guidance range, but below our long-term model. From a total operating profit perspective, non-GAAP operating profit was $1.19 billion, and non-GAAP operating margin was 36%, up 400 basis points year-on-year, and both above the midpoint of the guidance range. Non-GAAP interest expense was $97 million, with cash taxes for ongoing operations of $150 million, or approximately 13.7% effective cash tax rate, and non-controlling interest was $13 million. Stock-based compensation, which is not included in our non-GAAP earnings, was $89 million. Now, I would like to turn to the changes in our cash and debt. Our total debt at the end of Q1 was $11.16 billion, up $587 million sequentially, as we issued $1.5 billion of new debt and simultaneously retired early the $900 million of debt, which was due in June of 2023. Our ending cash position was $3.55 billion, up $862 million sequentially due to a combination of the previously mentioned financing, CapEx investments, and capital returns during Q2. The resulting net debt was $7.62 billion, and we exited the quarter with a trailing 12-month adjusted EBITDA of $4.96 billion. Our ratio of net debt to trailing 12-month adjusted EBITDA at the end of Q2 was 1.5 times, and our 12-month adjusted EBITDA interest coverage was 12.7 times. Turning to working capital metrics, days of inventory was 94 days, an increase of five days sequentially, and close to our long-term DIO target of 95 days, as we continue to experience incrementally improved supply trends. The increase in on-hand inventory was primarily in raw materials and work in process to support revenue growth in subsequent periods, especially Q3. We continue to closely manage our distribution channel with inventory in the channel at 1.6 months, well below our long-term target. Days receivable were 27 days, flat sequentially, and days payable were 94, an increase of one day versus the prior quarter. Taken together, our cash conversion cycle was 27 days, reflecting strong customer demand, solid receivable collections, and positioning for customer deliveries for future periods. Our working capital management and balance sheet metrics continue to be very strong. Cash flow from operations was $819 million, and net capex was $268 million, or 8.1% of revenue, resulting in non-GAAP free cash flow of $551 million, or 17% of revenue. During Q2, 
We paid $222 million in cash dividends on a trailing 12-month basis. We have returned 132% of our non-GAAP free cash flow back to the owners of the company, consistent with our capital allocation strategy. The cash flow generation of the business continues to be excellent. Turning now to our expectations for Q3. As Kurt mentioned, we anticipate revenue to be about $3.425 billion, plus or minus about $75 million. At the midpoint, this is up 20% year-on-year and about 3% sequentially. We expect non-GAAP gross margin to be about 57.8%, plus or minus 50 basis points. Operating expenses are expected to be about $743 million, plus or minus about $10 million, which is up about 3% sequentially driven by hiring, especially new college graduates and our normal project spend. Taken together, we see non-GAAP operating margin to be 36.1% at the midpoint. We estimate non-GAAP financial expense to be about $95 million and anticipate cash tax related to ongoing operations to be about $160 million or about a 14% effective cash tax rate consistent with our communicated model. Non-controlling interest should be about $13 million. For Q3, we suggest that for modeling purposes, you use an average share count of 265 million shares. Finally, I have a few closing comments I'd like to make. First, as Kurt mentioned in his prepared remarks, we have attempted to de-risk our Q3 outlook given the combination of the uncertain macroeconomic environment and well-documented weakness in the mobile and consumer end markets. Despite these potential risks, customer demand in the automotive and industrial remains strong and greater than our immediate ability to supply. Secondly, from a unique revenue growth standpoint, since November of last year at Investor Day, we discussed six accelerated growth drivers, looking at our first half performance of 2022 versus the same period last year. We are very well on track to the targets we presented. Lastly, our people. We are very proud of our, all our team members globally, and especially those in China, who continue to overcome severe COVID restrictions while simultaneously dealing with global supply chain disruptions this past quarter. We continue to be amazed at our employees' incredible dedication and resilience and for powering through these extremely tough times. Our results are a testament to their hard work. With that, Thank you, and I'll now turn it back over to the operator for questions. Thank you. One moment for our first question. Now, first question coming from the line of William Stein from Tourist Line is open. Great. Thanks so much for taking my questions, and congratulations on the strong execution. Um, my first question relates to your reference to risk-adjusted backlog. Bill, you've done a, a uh, both Bill and Kurt have done a bit of explaining that uh, in the prepared remarks. But 
I'm wondering if you can comment on your nominal backlog, and it sounds like the reasoning is related to more things you see outside of the company than what you see in your actual order trends. Maybe you can talk about the thought process and the magnitude of that risk adjustment. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks. Good morning, Will. Um, what what I tried to convey is indeed, first and foremost, that um, for the foreseeable period uh, ahead of us, we are actually only covered with 80% with our supply against the true demand which we see. And when I say true demand, then that comes back to the, to the risk adjustment. Uh, for good reasons, we have never revealed the size of our backlog through the, to the past quarters, because I think I've always been clear that we've always believed inside that huge backlog there might be double orders, which is just normal human behavior in times of, uh, in times of shortage. Now, over the past quarters, we have clearly learned much more from a transparency perspective about the true minimum needs of our end customers uh, across all markets. Uh, and we have very rigidly applied that knowledge to try and actually risk adjust that backlog in order to come to a number which is, which is maybe more meaningful. And I just want to emphasize, after doing that, Will, we still have only that 80% coverage of our increasing supply capability against that risk-adjusted demand. So what, what we try to say is uh, we try to be realistic around the size of the backlog. That's why we risk-adjusted. And that is different in each of the markets we serve. The result of it leads in the foreseeable future to an 80% coverage of, um, of that adjusted demand. Right. That helps a lot. Um, maybe the follow-up to that feels pretty natural is what is the company doing to improve by, uh, with internal capacity, your current foundry partners, and is there any effort underway to extend foundry relationships that could um, allow you to sort of um, come closer to meeting your customer demand? Thanks so much. Yeah, clearly um, we absolutely stick um, to our hybrid manufacturing model. Um, we continue to believe, and I think the results of the past six, six to eight quarters have, have given good evidence of that, that this is for the portfolio we are serving a very superior model of serving uh, the needs of our customers. Uh, and what that means is that indeed we are working on both ends of the equation. Uh, about 60% of our current wafer supply is coming uh, from foundry partners, um, and that is more and more predominantly uh, tuned into CMOS logic processes, um, especially when it comes to 300 millimeter and when it is below 90 nanometers. Uh, and in there, we are definitely uh, ramping up significantly our partnerships and our strategic collaboration with key foundry partners. We've, we've spoken about this in the past, and that is also what clearly is helping us in, in, in the past quarters. In the coming quarter, we talked about the sequential growth going forward in uh, incrementally increasing our supply. At the very same time, we are remodeling our own factories, which are all 200 millimeter facilities, to be the prime place for manufacturing proprietary uh, specialty processes. Uh, which are unique to NXP uh, and 
by moving out more of the CMOS to our foundry partners, we are creating more space internally in our existing facilities to serve the increased and ever-growing needs for these proprietary technologies going forward. So that is a refinement of the hybrid model, but it's still important that I, I really want to emphasize we stick to the hybrid model, which again has also allowed us to outgrow our key peers in that market over the last six quarters. Great, thank you. Thank you, one moment for our next question. And our next question coming from the line of Ross Seymour with Deutsche Bank. Kielan is open. Hi, guys. Thanks for letting me ask a question. Kurt, I, I uh, wanted to dive a little bit into the, you know, the, the potential disconnect of you guys doing everything you can to manage the backlog, scrub it, uh, appreciate what's going on in macro. But yet the guidance seems fine in the quarter, and, you know, you said you're going to grow in the second half versus the first. So I guess as you look at that, when do you think – it will start to be a little bit more apparent uh, what macro is doing if it stays like it is. And, and maybe more pointedly, it's great that you're growing in the second half, um, but last quarter you said you thought you would grow sequentially in the third and fourth quarter. So does that growth in the second half imply that you still believe you will grow sequentially in the fourth quarter? Yeah, so uh, thanks, Ross. First of all, um, indeed, we try to make sure that you all hear loud and clear that we are not neglecting the cross-currents in the macro, which have also started to be visible in our orders, uh, especially in the mobile market. Now, mobile is for us relatively small, so it doesn't, it doesn't really impact the whole company very much. Um, but the principle we are applying is to be hyper-disciplined and hyper-paranoid to not grow any inventory uh, down the chain. Uh, so we, we, we try to stay there as disciplined as we can be, and the first area where we are applying this as we speak is in our mobile market and to a certain extent in, in the small portions of consumer, more consumer-oriented uh, segments inside our industrial and IoT uh, sector. Now, when you, when you ask about the second half, yes, we are confirming within that more turmoiled macro that the second half is going to grow sequentially uh, over the first half in absolute dollar terms. Uh, we just gave you the guidance for quarter three. I don't have a crystal ball for quarter four, but I can tell you that we remain um, totally sold out for the rest of the year. Uh, I also tried to highlight that supply continues to, um, to ramp up sequentially into the, uh, into the next quarters. Uh, so, I cannot really make a firm assessment on what mobile and other consumer markets will, will do into, into the fourth quarter, but clearly from the strength in the automotive and industrial sectors which we are serving, uh, we, are, we are quite optimistic for the second half to also continue to grow sequentially. Thanks for that, color, Kurt. I guess my follow-up one for Bill. Uh, I noticed this was the first quarter in, I think, a couple of years that you guys didn't repurchase any shares. Uh, lots of people trying to read into what that may or may not mean, but can you go into the thinking of, of what led you to stop uh, the buyback for a quarter? Yeah, first off, thanks, Ross, for your question, and I wouldn't read too much into it. First off, there's no change to our capital return policy. As stated many, many times, we will return all excess free cash flow on a trailing 12-month basis. During Q2, um, in my prepared remarks, we returned 132% of 
uh, of our 12 trailing 12 months uh, for free cash flow. Remember, we also raised our dividend in the quarter by 50%, and we still have authorization buyback of over $3 billion from our board. At the end of the year, we do expect to return to be at least 100% or higher, consistent with our stated policy. Thank you. Thank you. One moment for our next question. And our next question coming from the lineup, CJ Mutes with Evercore ISI. Your line is open. Yeah, good morning. Thank you for taking the question. I guess first question, Kurt, I was hoping you could speak to, um, you know, how you're thinking about the overall state uh, of the auto industry. This morning, uh, since Auto missed, but it, it looks like their second half prior outlook was perhaps a bit aggressive. Um, at the same time, you have OEMs that are waiting for those golden screws, and you know, hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll get those. But as I look at your mix, um, you know, obviously EV and ADAS, along with higher uh, input uh, costs and, and higher ASPs, you know, are sustaining uh, you know excellent growth for you guys. So, so curious, how, how you how do you see things playing out, uh, and what what uh, when do you think we can normalize uh, in the auto supply demand side of things? Um, you know, is, is that in, in 2023, or, or, or might that be longer? Yeah, thanks, uh, thanks, CJ. Um, <laughs> that's not an easy question. Um, I, I dare to, I dare to follow IHS in the first place, which, which I think hasn't changed the forecast for this year for the SAR very much. I think they continue to speak about like a five percent growth of the SAR this year, which, uh, which would get us to. Well, just short of 81, uh, 81 million cars this year. Um, however, that includes a 9% half two over half one growth in car production this year, um, which is not a big surprise because I think half one again has suffered massively from semiconductor shortages, and especially in the second quarter, it has suffered a lot from the COVID shutdowns in, um, in China which impacted mainly the, 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 the Japanese, Chinese, and Southeast Asian car production. I mean, there was a little less uh, pronounced for, for the Western world, but a lot uh, in, in, in China and Japan. And mind you, that, that China continues to be the largest car country uh, in the world. So from a, from a shorter-term perspective, CJ, uh, I think half two car production will grow um, quite nicely over the first half, finally. Uh, and that trend should also continue according to IHS, into the next year, which I think will be another 8, 8% growth or so. All of that, in our views, is still probably short of consumer demand. Um, now, it will depend on the macro uh, and looming recessions in different, different geographies to what extent consumer demand is, is muted for cars. But we think the car production is so low and so far below the, the highs in 2018 or early 19. Uh, that even if consumer demand is muting, there is still a gap um, such that I think it's very realistic to assume that car production continues to grow. Now, at the same time, and, and I know we've discussed it to death before, the bigger factor for us, however, certainly remains the content increase. And from a content increase, uh, it's just amazing. Every quarter I, I come with new numbers here, especially EV penetration, uh, has accelerated again. I think the latest forecast for this year is now that 26% of the global car production is going to be XEVs. 
uh, I think last quarter we talked about 23%. Uh, I mean, these are massive numbers, and, and this, this 26% this year is in absolute terms a 46% year-on-year growth in XCV production. And again, mind you that with our battery management, inverter control, and, and many, many microprocessors and microcontrollers associated with XCVs, uh, and an overall semi-contact, which is more than 2x relative to combustion engine cars, this continues to be a massive momentum ahead of the car production, which in itself is now also growing. So, sorry for the lengthy reply, but we are quite animated about the fact that there continues to be a big gap there, uh, and the content increase is, is, uh, is pulling the car for us. That's very helpful. Um, as my follow-up, I heard the earlier comments around um, absolutely adhering to your hybrid manufacturing model, but you did speak to optimizing your internal capacity uh, and considering, um, you know, the 8-inch, 90 nanometer and above demand that's out there. Is there a point in time uh, where you would need to consider uh, a new JV uh, factory with PSMC? Well, first half of your question, yes. Second half, I, I will not comment to because it, the matter of the fact is, yes, uh, what I described will very naturally, with continuously growing demand, lead to a moment where our internal four walls existing capacity, even after the reshuffling I described, will not be enough to serve future demand. So, yes, we will do something about it, but there is various different ways of achieving this uh, CJ. So, uh, don't get got locked down into the idea with TSM. There is all sorts of options which we can do, uh, including, but again, not exclusively, but also including uh, the opportunities which are being provided by the chip techs in, uh, in Europe and the U.S., where the majority of, of, uh, of our facilities are. Very helpful. Thank you. Our next question coming from the line of Vivek Arya with Bank of America. Yolanda Salfin. Uh, thanks for taking my question. Um, Kurt, I wanted to ask about uh, NCNR orders and, and pricing dynamics. Let's say if um, auto production is, you know, flat or down next year, I'm curious how enforceable are these NCNR orders and how defensible will the pricing uh, strength be in, in that uh, kind of market? Yeah, thanks, Vivek. Um, let me start with the second part, the pricing. Um, given the very stubborn imbalance between supply and demand in most of the technologies needed for automotive, uh, I have a very high confidence that the pricing is very stable. Um, I would actually, and maybe unfortunately, go a step further. We do continue to see our input cost rising. Um, also into next year, uh, which would indeed force us to also continue to raise our pricing. Um, so rather than thinking about pricing to uh, become softer again, I believe that especially in the automotive environment where this, where this supply-demand imbalance is here into next year, uh, there is a chance that pricing continues to go up uh, into next year. Again, and I, I think I said it The 
number of times, we have a very clear and, and very much transparent policy here that we are increasing our prices to the customers in line with the input, input cost increases, which we are experiencing in order to protect our cross-margin percentages. Uh, so on that side, from a pricing perspective, uh, even with a flat car production or, or maybe as you said, as you suggested, which, which I don't think is going to be the case, uh, reducing car production, I think that would still be the case because of the content increases which are driving so much demand anyway. Um, now, the other, the other side was the supply situation per se. In a way, I, I answered it. Given content increases surpassing the impact or outbalancing the impact of the SARS so much, I unfortunately believe that even in a soft reduction of SAR next year, we would continue to see in many technologies an imbalance between supply and demand next year. And then my follow-up uh, is on uh, the margins. Um, so gross margins are, are, you know, getting towards the high end of your target. And I think EBIT margins, from what I see, you're guiding a little bit above the high end of your um, target model. Is it time to revise uh, the model? And let's say if Q4 uh, grows um, sequentially, uh, can margins also continue to uh, expand? Is there still positive leverage uh, in the model? Thank you. Hey, Vivek, this is Bill. I'll take that question. So um, related to the high end of our model, yes, we are performing at those levels at this current time. I'd just like to remind everyone that we'll focus on growing our top line or revenue and a faster growth at the top line of 1% will be greater and better than a 1% change in our margin as we go forward. We're not going to update our long-term model every quarter or every year, and we'll revisit this during our normal three-year long-term model that we provide or if there's any material change to our business model. So no change. Uh, we feel very confident to run, like I mentioned last call, in the uh, toward our high end of the model for the rest of the year. Thank you. Thank you. One moment for our next question. And our next question coming from the line of Gary Mobley with Wells Fargo. Your line is open. Hey, guys. Thanks for taking my question. I appreciate your uh, commentary with respect to how you de-risked in your third quarter guide the different macro issues and, and, and whatnot, but I want to ask, conversely, what can go right in the last two-plus months of the quarter, you know, to maybe hit the high end of the expectation as it relates to, you know, COVID mitigation in China, kidding issues, additional supply, and, and whatnot? Well, uh, Gary, I mean, we give a guidance with a midpoint and a range in order to comprehend uh, risks and opportunities at the same time. I think uh, the elements you just listed are certainly part of well, both potential risk and potential opportunities. Again, we carefully uh, thought about weighing the upsides and downsides, and, and that's why we landed on a uh, on the midpoint of uh, 3, 4, 25, as we as we just guided a couple of a couple of minutes ago. Um, I I would say the following. Um, for us, the overall sentiment is, given the, 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 the big percentage in our revenue, is obviously dominated by how, how automotive and industrial markets are, are going. Uh, and here, a guidance for the next quarter 
is really driven by what we hear from our customers. I mean, it's such a short period of time in a way that, that it is really just tuned into the, the short-term customer uh, confirmed orders and our supply capability. And the way I would put it, uh, Q3 upsides are probably more than anything dominated by our supply capability since we are sold out for the quarter. Appreciate the color, Kurt. Uh, as my follow-up, I wanted to ask about the six accelerated growth drivers that you began to outline at your annual stay and continue to outline. Uh, of the six, and looking out over the next 12 months, which of those six would you expect to be the biggest contributor to, uh, you know, to your revenue growth? Well, the six, the six uh, accelerated growth drivers, I mean, we guided them for three years. When we did our investor day in November of last year, uh, that was really meant as a three-year uh, uh, guidance. And you've also seen there the relative sizes between them and the relative uh, growth speed. And I think Bill in his prepared remarks uh, emphasized that we are, what did you say, very well on track, Bill, uh, for all six of them. So I think the way you should look at this is that all six are very much intact and the relative contribution of them is in line with how we guided them in the Investor Day last November. There, there is no change. But what I think is important to say is that they are all on a very, uh, on a very good track. Thanks, Kurt. Thank you. One, one, one moment for our next question. And our next question coming from the line of Joseph Moore with Morgan Stanley. Great, thank you. Um, in answer to your prior question, you said you were going to be careful with sort of customers trying to build inventory, but there's also a clear message from your automotive customers that they do want to hold a larger amount of safety stock. Can you talk to that effort generally? <clears throat> do you see that build having started yet? You know, where do you do you plan to allow them to have to hold more safety buffer, and do you expect that to happen at the OEM level or at the tier one level if that does happen? Thank you. Yeah, Stacey, that, that, that is an important uh, dynamic indeed. Um, so in general, I'd say the OEMs try to leave that challenge with the tier ones. Uh, there might be exceptions here and there, but the, the more general direction is that the OEMs put this on the, on the shoulders of the tier ones. Um, size of that is varying. Um, we see and hear about requests which are in the order of three months. We hear others which talk about six months of, of inventory. Uh, it is also not the same for each product. Uh, they categorize, I think, more into very single source, very strategic products versus more commodity-like products. So it has all sorts of variations, but I think, first of all, general message, more with the tier ones than the, uh, than the OEMs. Has it started yet? No. Um, the, the, the supply capability, at least relative to NXP product. I mean, I can't make that, that comment for, for my peers, but for our product, uh, no, it hasn't started yet. Any inventory build, which, which accidentally might happen at tier ones at the moment, is indeed more related to the golden screw problem, uh, where it builds for a while and then it flushes through again when the golden screw product uh, uh, becomes available. But that's not associated with or because of the, the intended uh, uh, safety stocks. I believe that somewhere in the course of next year, 
uh, that will will in a more methodological way uh, start to be start to be built. Uh, I do indeed believe that towards six months might be a consensus. Uh, many of them want to achieve, um, but again, only only in the course of next year. Great, thank you very much. Thank you. One moment for our next question. Our next question coming from the lineup. Stacey Roscoe with Open. Hi, guys. Uh, thanks for taking my questions. Um, the first one, Bill, I wanted to follow up on a comment that you might have made in, in passing. Um, I know you guys have talked about de-risking Q3 backlog, but, Bill, you actually said that you, re you de-risk Q3 outlook. I'm actually wondering, did you actually reduce the uh, revenue outlook that you gave um, uh, coincident with uh, some of the cautions that you talked about? I I'm not sure you did because it also sounds like you're supply constrained anyways, but um, was there any sort of reduction at all in your outlook given the, the macros that you're seeing? And if so, like how much was it and which end markets? Yeah, so probably that is a matter of fact for especially the mobile market where you, you saw that we actually guided sequentially a touchdown. Uh, since we are not overly, but we are also exposed to the, to the low-end Android uh, players in, uh, in China, and I have a total paranoia <laughs> to not build any inventory there. Um, so I'd say there is probably indeed a risk adjustment um, on, from the macro perspective relative to mobile in that particular part of our business. Uh, there at the same time in auto and industrial for the third quarter, I, I can only repeat what I said earlier, we are sold out and the, the revenue capability is, is much more determined by our supply capability in the third quarter. So it's a mixed picture where the majority is, uh, is clearly uh, continues to be supply constrained. Uh, thank the you. Um, uh, let me take one more. Oh, yes, the please. risk adjustment was also a longer-term, a longer-term message, uh, which is really related to the to the assessment of about 80% uh, supply coverage against demand. That is not just a statement for Q3. I mean, that is really a statement for the for the longer-term period. I, I would go that far to say it includes uh, very large parts of next year, actually. Uh, where, where that judgment is done after risk adjustments. And, you know, risk adjustments are also when we, when we get order patterns, say, in automotive, from automotive customers, and we, we add them all up, and then we know what content increases should be. We know where the car production could possibly be next year. And then, of course, you see that all the different tier ones want to win market share. <laughs> all the OEMs want to win market share against each other. And the sum of the, of the parts is then bigger of what could be realistic. So then we make a risk adjustment to this because we know that the SAR can only be at a certain size next year. So that's, that's one, of the, one of the elements which I would label, practically speaking, risk adjustments, where we bring down what looks like an overwhelmingly huge backlog. Got it. That, that's super helpful. Thank you. Um, for my follow-up, I wanted to repeat a question. Somebody else asked it, but I don't think you actually answered it. Um, it was around the, the non-cancelable, non-returnable orders. You know, we've seen these from other companies, and it turns out, you know, in practice, maybe they're not quite as non-cancelable as they appeared. How non-cancelable and non-returnable are your NCN orders, really? 
Well, indeed, sorry, I, I, uh, I know that was part of an earlier question. I think I, I, missed, I missed speaking to it. Well, it's like with every contract. Um, there is clearly a legal, a legal uh, system in place, uh, but in the end, of course, um, reasonable behavior will prevail. What I can tell you, however, is that so far, every, every, every one of them has been, has been uh, fulfilled. I mean, there is no, we, we don't see any, in automotive industrial, there is no push-outs, there is no cancellations. People want to have more product. Now, how that looks at some time in the future, when, when maybe macro continues to change more, could be different, but fundamentally, we put that system in place in order to make sure that our customers are serious and think two times and three times about what level of orders they want to put on us. And, and mind you that in many markets, uh, different products from different uh, customers go into one end product. So we have to make sure that there is a proper allocation between them, then otherwise the car company is only suffering in the end. I mean, if there is too much orders from one tier one and the other one orders not enough, then it doesn't help the car company. That's another reason why we are really uh, trying to put NCRs in place in order to, um, to hold people uh, to the truth. Let me just add to what Kurt mentioned. What we said this year, NCRs were larger than our long-term commitments. Of those NCRs, we can't service them all. We have started our process for 2023 NCRs, and they are tracking to similar levels as well which we won't be able to supply as we go forward. Got it. That's super helpful, guys. Thank you so much. Livia, do we have other questions? Yes, our next question coming from the line of Matt Ramsey with Colin Yelena-Sulpin. Um, yes, thank you very much. Good morning. Um, Bill, I wanted to ask a question about OPEX in sort of the context of the macro environment that we're talking about here. Um, you guys have, with the revenue growth and the gross margin expansion, I think growing gross profit, I don't know, it'll be 75% or something like that from 20 to 22, and that's allowed for a lot of expansion of the operating expense while you're still getting leverage. And I, I guess the question is with inflationary pressures and wages and all those things, it seems like there's still some, some upward pressure in, in the OPEX line. And, and I just wanted to know what, what kind of levers you had to control that um, and, and what the priorities would be to control that if, in fact, the macro did turn. And would you be committed to sort of um, holding the operating margin flat, or, or is there a case where you're going to need to keep spending despite what might go on in the macro? I guess it, um, just puts and takes on OPEX would be helpful. Thanks. Sure. Thank you for your question. Um, again, we continue to do uh, very well here um, as we are operating below the 23% long-term model. Uh, Q2, we finished at 21.9, uh, and uh, that was slightly better than our guide. And I think we just guided 21.7. And again, that primary increase from an absolute standpoint is really being driven by our new college graduates joining the company and continuing R&D investment supporting our growth ambitions. Now, if there is a downturn, what will we do? We have a plan for that. It's well-defined. And it's all around protecting uh, our free cash flow. Our, our plan actions would potentially include reducing variable compensation, uh, reduced discretionary spending, uh, reducing non-critical capex, 
will slow down our non-engineering hiring. And also, right, our attrition runs around 10 12%. We would obviously not backfill all of those, depending on how severe it gets. By all means, we will protect our R&D engine of the company, which I've said in the past, as well as Kurt, is the lifeblood of our growth. Um, and then similar with optimizing our costs, you have to remember the last two years we've been optimizing toward material shipments um, to prevent customer line downs. We haven't been focused on our mix or optimizing of costs or yields or cycle time, so uh, that's another level, that, a lever that we have in our playbook um, to maintain our margins in our range that we shared during our analyst day. Got it. Thanks, thanks Bill. Um, quick follow-up for Kurt. I, I was interested in, in your prepared script. I think you mentioned that the same sort of ratio of, of your, your product portfolio still had 52-week lead times as, as was last quarter. Uh, we get a lot of investor questions about Maybe there's shortages of Part X, but there's inventory builds of Part Y and Part Z, and things are out of balance. It doesn't seem like that's the case with, with NXT's business. I'd, I'd be interested if you could comment on that a bit further. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely, Matt. I, I guess that really has to do with the, with the mix of our end market exposure. Um, so I would actually uh, confirm that in mobile, we are probably moving away from supply constraints. Uh, but uh, those technologies are badly needed in other markets which we are serving, which are heavily underserved, um, while the demand there continues to go up. Um, so it, it, is, it is, of course, a puzzle where we quickly try to redirect from where demand is softening, and, and again, that's, that's especially the low-end uh, Android handsets and um, some, of the, some of the more consumer-oriented products in, in China, which is little for us. I mean, the, the whole point is this is not that much for us, but that little where we have it, we move it to, to other areas in auto and industrial where actually demand continues to go up such that in, in the bottom line, in the end, we, we unfortunately, and I, I really have to put it that way, we are still at a similar lead time pattern as we had indeed last quarter, which is that about 80% of the portfolio sits at 52 weeks plus lead time. But it is different product. So that, that's why I totally understand and support your question. It is not exactly on the same products because it's, it's moving, um, but in the mix it still, it still stays at that level. Olivia, <clears throat> I think we'll move to the uh, last question for the uh, call today, please. Certainly, and our last question coming from Delana Toshirahar with Goldman Sachs. Delana Sultan. Hi, good morning. Uh, thanks so much for taking the question. Um, I was hoping you can speak to trends that you're seeing in the in the China business, um, particularly around industrial and distribution. I think historically um, it had been a fairly volatile uh, part of your business, but but clearly based on your overall industrial and IoT numbers, you seem to be doing really well. So any any sort of puts and takes around, particularly around the lockdowns, going into it, coming out of it, um, any comments would be super helpful. Yeah, uh, so first of all, relative to the lockdowns, I mean, we had indeed uh, also risk-adjusted our quarter two guidance, um, uh, which had to do much more with supply than demand. Uh, that was about epoxy suppliers, uh, lead frame suppliers, uh, and others. 
And as you can see from how we how we managed to 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 make our uh, actuals work, some of that exactly materialized. I mean, in, in, indeed, uh, we saw that. However, uh, we see now since June um, pretty significant and impactful stimulus programs by the China government, which are starting to take effect, and that's both into the industrial as well as into the automotive market. So there is a slight optimism notwithstanding the risk of further, uh, further lockdowns, of course, in China. But from a government stimulus program perspective, there is optimism both for the industrial as well as for the automotive markets uh, in China for Q3 and for the second half of the year. Uh, I, I, have, I think mentioned it briefly in my prepared remarks. Our um, uh, channel inventory is, is sitting still only at 1.6. Um, which is very low, and mind you that the industrial business of NXP, and with that especially in China, is, is, is dominated by the distribution channel. So a lot of that is in China. Um, and as you can see, it, it really hasn't moved up much. Uh, I think we, we had 1.5 the last two quarters, 1.6 before. So we are still hoovering at that very low level, which is a month below our, our 2.5 target, actually. Yeah, that's super helpful. Thank you. And then as my quick follow-up, um, you know, separate topic, but on the currency dynamics, um, you know, obviously you've seen the dollar appreciate uh, significantly relative to, to other currencies. And, and, you know, I recognize that, you know, customers don't swap in and out components given given long qualification cycles and whatnot. But as we think about, you know, the competitive landscape and, and microcontrollers over the next, you know, couple of years, just given how strong the dollar is today, you know, is that something that we, we should be cognizant of and, and worried about as, as you compete with, you know, companies like SDM and Renaissance, or, or is that not really a, a, a topic that we should be spending too much time on? Thank you. Yeah, I'll take that one. Thank you for your question. Uh, NXP is a global company. Uh, we're U.S.-based. We're naturally hedged against the euro, um, so I'm not really too concerned about it. Thank you. All right, so I think that gets us to the uh, to the end of the call. Uh, and let me just highlight once again, we we feel we have operated well in the second quarter uh, in a pretty turmoiled environment. Uh, we are also very cognizant of the um, of the macro cross currents, which we which we also discussed quite a bit in this call. Uh, yet the outcome is that in the in the majority size of our revenues, uh, which is the industrial and automotive markets, we we continue to be sold out. We think the underlying secular growth trends, especially from content increases, both in industrial and automotive applications. Uh, are also providing a pretty safe landing going forward relative, uh, relative to demand. The one thing which we are very paranoid and very hard working on is indeed making sure that our inventories down the chain remain low. We think today they are low. We have evidence of this in the channel with 1.6 months. Uh, and our whole focus day in, day out is to make sure that on the one hand we organize more supply, but on the other hand, we make sure that there is no excess inventory being built uh, in the market down there. Uh, with that, I want to thank you all on behalf of NXP for today's call and uh, see and speak to you all soon. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. This ends our call today. Thanks, everyone. Bye now. Ladies and gentlemen, our conference for today. Thank you for your participation.
You may now disconnect. Good day.